0: You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on wgnradio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is
1: back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events, but we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Uh, Zoe Chance is a return guest to the podcast. She teaches at the Yale School of Management, and prior to Yale, Zoe managed a two hundred million dollar segment of Barbie brand at Mattel. And she acted on stage and film. Um, she's written a new book. It's called "Influence Is Your Superpower: The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen." Enjoy the pod. <music> The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes Hand.
2: Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to Tomorrow Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss
1: Zoe Chance, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Kelly. I'm super excited to be here.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you again. Um, You note in the first chapter of your book that the word influence presents a kind of mixed bag in the modern world. And you write, quote, the whole idea of influence has been corrupted by tacky, greedy people using tacky, greedy tactics to sell used cars to promote sponsors' products on social media, and to get us to buy now while supplies last, Uh, end quote. How is your version of influence different from that version of influence?
0: Thank you, Kelly. My version of influence is the idea that we can have inclusive influence, Mm. where we're all working on this thing together. And us, doing well doesn't mean other people doing poorly. And rather than treating people transactionally, like they're just a means or an obstacle to us getting what we want, we are treating them like human beings. And we look for the long run relationships and maybe it's going to be yes right now. Maybe it's going to be no right now. But what we hope is that along this path, and this is what I've seen training now over a thousand people over the past decade, is that we become increasingly someone that other people want to say yes to. Mm -hmm. So we eventually aren't even thinking about consciously using influence tools and strategies very much. We're just relating to people and they're excited to be on board with our projects. That's the goal.
1: It's interesting, this is just popping into my head that that so many of our conversations on this podcast are about sort of reimagining metaphors or words. Um, so whether it's... Um, Kelly McGonigal talking about stress, that stress isn't necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, it's, it can be a very good thing for performance. We just have to understand it differently. Paul Bloom talking about um, chosen suffering and that, you know, like a lot of things that we do are, are, are painful, but we do them for a reason. And there's meaning behind that. This, this seems like a running theme. So it's like almost like trying to, and Annie Murphy Paul, the, the bad metaphors we use for our brain, you know, like, like it's like, like a computer. So is it in some ways, are you looking to sort of reclaim influence in, in a very positive sense?
0: Absolutely. It's a revolutionary claim that shouldn't be revolutionary, but that I want to take influence back for all of us away from these social media influencers that we all find pretty annoying.
1: You do mention, though, that if you're a kind and smart person, you might be in a bit of a bind with this stuff.
0: Yeah, or even a double bind if you're both kind and smart. Oh, no. I know. It sucks for you, Kelly. (laughs) So. If you're a smart person, and I know if you're listening to the podcast, you probably are because you have to be a nerd to want yes. to listen to podcasts like this, right? Yes, exactly. And definitely to want to create podcasts like this or to want to write books and all that. So we tend to imagine that our decisions are made consciously, intellectually, deliberatively, and deliberately. And that's how other people's decisions are made too. So we should be giving them the best information that we can Mm. to help them make the right decision. And if we're nice, we extra step back from influence tools or techniques or strategies or tactics, because we don't want to manipulate anybody. And we conflate influence with manipulation.
2: That's interesting.
0: If you're kind... You're probably not doing it enough. Mm -hmm. And if you're smart, you're probably not doing it right. So if you're kind of smart, yeah, you're kind of screwed. But you don't have to be.
1: No, no, no. Um, So you and I have had quite a few conversations over the years. But oddly, we've never gone into depth about your theatrical background. No, it's true. And and given that I've worked in theater my entire life, and you say, quote, my journey to becoming influential began with the theater. So tell us us how that I, I have an idea. But yeah,
0: you tell us your story. Yeah, sure. So I was super shy as a child and I was also really nerdy as you can tell from what my theory was about why people didn't listen to me and they talked over me all the time. I thought that my voice was the same timbre as the ambient sounds of the universe and that's mm-hmm. why nobody could hear me. And So there was this opportunity to audition for a theater project in which everyone was guaranteed a speaking role. And I figured that if you're on stage, people have to listen to you. So I auditioned and I got a role and it was the least glamorous role in this children's production of Aladdin. It was cobbler number three and I wore a mustache and a fez and I said, (laughs) shoes for sale. And this was my theatrical debut. And I ended up from That experience and then many more through high school and college and then even professionally after college doing some more theater and doing film acting and directing, um, getting to, I guess, the end point and semi-pinnacle of my acting career was uh, two decades later after that I'm doing this karate movie and I play the female lead in Mm -hmm. this karate movie that's on on Encore. And it is so boring that both <laughs> my parents fall asleep and they are divorced and they live in two different states and they're my parents.
2: Wow. So that's how
0: bad it was. But <laughs> through the, the theatrical experiences and training, it was tremendous practice and learning and education about how to relate to other people and how to access emotions, your own emotions and other people's emotions.
1: And I think too the this this bridge between theater and behavioral science um isn't a surprise. I mean, if you look back at Irving Goffman's like stuff stuff around the front stage and backstage and offstage behavior, that's that's a very clean metaphor for for what this is. And the work that we've done um at the University of Chicago with the behavioral science community. It, uh, there was an interesting thing I actually um my wife Anne found out that Paul Ekman, uh, who our listeners might uh, know as the um, inspiration for the character in *Lie to Me* that series, and uh, that he was at the University of Chicago at the same time the founders of Second City were. So I called him, and he took our call. Uh, and it turns out he actually ran lights for one of their this is like Mike Nichols, Elaine May. He ran lights for production, but fell asleep, so they never went off, and he got fired after one show. <laughs>
2: Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. But
1: all these people were uh, at the University of Chicago kind of at the same time in the in the mid to late 50s. And it's like and you just see all that work still bubbling up to, you know, uh, ideas that are, uh, you know, in vogue today.
0: That's fascinating there. There are a lot of people who are outside the world of theater and performance who think of it as being something false. And I think Irving Goffman actually is part of the reason for that. (laughs) His work on self-presentation got a lot of people focused on trying to figure out how can I pretend to be a certain way so that other people will judge me or perceive me that way. But I see your work and other people's work in improvisational theater as actually being the opposite. Right. Of that being so present with another human being and in the moment that you're focused, you're, you're focusing your attention completely on them. And you, I think, but you tell me if this is right, that you have to take your attention off of yourself and worrying about what people think of you, or you'd suck as an improv actor.
1: Yeah. Your, 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 your only job is to save your scene partner. Literally, mm. that's that's a phrase. And I remember too when when we we taught improv uh, uh, there and in Richard Thaler, we taught him the yes and exercises. and he's like, "This is a nudge. This is a nudge you got around the default." You know, to say no or, or and I'm like, "Yeah, I mean, that's a lot. A lot of improv exercises are you you could call them nudges. They are ways of building up very specific skills uh, that apply to all the various ways human beings get it wrong in terms of not listening." not be collaborating, not understanding how to lead by following all those things.
0: Yeah. And your whole book is just chock full. By the way, Kelly, I know your listeners won't. I mean, if you're listening to this, you can't see it, but Kelly, you can maybe see it. I was just thinking as I was getting ready for our call. So I have behind me in my office Mm -hmm. a bookshelf, but this is actually my book altar that I built when I was writing my book and I was stressed and scared and excited and I needed All of the power. Like, if I were religious, I would have all these religious icons behind (laughs) me. I'm not religious. So I have all of these books that I love and books by people that I love. And yours is both. And it's right here. Oh. Yay. It's been making me happy and helping me write my book for the... Well, I guess it took about five years <laughs>
1: for yeah, the whole process. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> though, uh, though, um, you know, and that's when we got acquainted with each other. And reading your writing from then to what you found your voice in this book in a very interesting way. Um, uh, it's un- unusual for a book around social psychology and in, 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 in that to have this Zoe's voice like which is joyful and fun and not afraid to have some humor while also completely being nerdy about the scholarship. So that's a that's a tension in terms of writing that I I don't know that I saw 5 years ago that I definitely see in the final book.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's been a long road and a big challenge and A lot of your listeners are people who are working in teams and many, many people leading people. And I want to share for anyone who's interested in writing a book. And as I've been writing a book, I feel like 40 to 60% of people I meet are like, oh, I'm writing a book or I'm thinking of writing a book too. And you really don't have to do it by yourself. And even though you're saying, Kelly, that you found your voice, and I feel this book absolutely is my Zoe authentic voice, just as Mm -hmm. you hear it, I worked with a team of people on this project. My whole life is a group project. I had a writer who worked with me for a year and a half every single day. This is her full-time job along with mine, a Mm -hmm. fabulous editor from Random House, two amazing agents. And then another editor I hired on my own to help us Mm. out. And through the pandemic, Anne-Marie and Peter and I, so the writer and the outside editor and I were on the phone with each other every single day. And then Mm. on top of that, the nerdy part is I had three research assistants helping me out with the research part. So I feel like, This is uniquely my book, but it's like a Wes Anderson movie. (laughs) I love this director. (laughs) He's he's quirky. He's unique. You see a movie and you know that it's his, but then you see the credits at the end and it's not like he did it by himself. There is a whole tribe of people bringing this forth.
1: So the central element of this book is basically a a new definition, a new metaphor for Danny Kahneman's uh, system one, system two. And I I think I see why you're doing that in terms of making it accessible and and understood at even a higher level. So can you talk about uh, the gator and the judge?
0: Yeah, a lot of people are familiar with, have heard of, or maybe read Danny Kahneman's work or Dan Ariely or other behavioral scientists, the fundamental concept in behavioral economics beneath every other idea is that we have two systems that are responsible for all of our thinking and all of our behavior. And there were good intellectual reasons that the people who invented this, Stanovich and West, called them system one and system two. However, as I've been teaching behavioral economics, I find that it's really hard for people to remember which is which and what's Mm -hmm. what. So Gator and Judge are just a metaphor that I've chosen for them. But you guys, don't go out into the world after this podcast and be like, oh, Hey, I just learned about the gator and the judge because that's just the Zoe metaphor. And it's not in the canon, but the gator represents system one and it's fast, intuitive, unconscious and automatic. And it's the first responder. It is according to people who study this stuff. We can't quantify. Nobody can quantify how much is system one and how much is system two of what we do, but people estimate, researchers estimate it's maybe 95% of our thinking and behavior results from system one. And if you're doing improv, you're kind of shooting from the hip and you have to get into gator mode, right? The other mode is system two. And I use the metaphor of the judge who this is conscious, slow, deliberate, effortful, and seemingly objective and rational. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: What's going on there is that even though we perceive ourselves as being conscious and rational, it's because we can't perceive what's going on unconsciously by Mm -hmm. definition. Mm -hmm. And we also can't perceive the influence that the gator has on the judge. So the gator is this primitive, instinctual, relatively or seemingly mindless way of operating, takes care of all habitual behavior, which everything we've done through practice becomes habitual. Um, And, everything that's instinctual. This is most of what we do. And because it happens first, we have these emotional reactions to people, situations, opportunities, and then we get to think about them consciously and evaluate them. But a lot, a hell of a lot of what we're doing consciously is just rationalizing and justifying what we already wanted to do subconsciously or unconsciously.
1: So you note that the research, some research, researchers have said that maybe 95% of our decisions are Gator. So that that's that. But then this other 5%, it's not like that is all rational. In fact, it's maybe 1%,
0: a 0.5%. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. know. We can put a number on it, but it's really, 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 really tiny. And yeah. most people don't realize that reason and logic are influence processes. There is a purpose, hypothesis hypothesis, or aim or goal of what are you trying to reason yourself or someone else into? What's the logical argument you're trying to make? You could make a logical argument on either side of plenty mm-hmm. of issues. So we're just not nearly as rational as we think. And what that means is that when we're trying to influence somebody, we absolutely need to focus on the gator, the unconscious processes and automatic habitual decisions, because that's going to have a bigger impact on their behavior than if we're focusing on building the best argument. Because actually, gator, alligators, and I tell a story in the book illustrating this, but they're super lazy. We think of them as Mm. being vicious, bloodthirsty creatures, but they're so efficient and utterly lazy. And one nerdy fact about alligators is that they can actually go for three years without eating. That's how lazy they are. And that's how little they move. And this is a metaphor for us. And what we're doing with most influence attempts is just ignoring them. We just ignore most of the world because we don't want to give our conscious attention away, which is in such short supply.
1: Uh, one of the nice things in the book is you talk about the various studies that you have done and, and different things that you do in class. And you teamed up with two of my buddies, uh, Francesca Gino and Mike Norton, to do a study with IQ tests. Can you talk to, to us about that?
0: Yeah this is when we were doing some research on self-deception um and this is with Dan Ariely as well mm. and we were studying how people delude themselves into thinking they're smarter than they are because they cheat so we give people IQ type tests and some of them have the answer key and mm. they that they can look at, they're kind of not supposed to look at the key. And then everybody grades their performance. They see how they did. Of course, people with the answer key did better, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then we have them predict. And in some cases we have them bet when they make their predictions, how are you going to do on the next test? And we'll show them the test. They can see there's no answer key. So they know there's no opportunity to cheat, but the people who have had the opportunity to cheat and they've done better because of it, believe that they're going to continue doing just as well. They're justifying, rationalizing their good performance, thinking maybe, yeah, I kind of sort of knew that, right? Like, oh, okay, yeah, I looked at the answer, but Mm. I would have known that it was that. We also find in subsequent work that when we give people multiple opportunities to cheat and then face reality, it takes more than two doses of facing reality before you start to realize you're not actually as smart as you hoped, and wow. and and if you get another opportunity to cheat, self deception just drops right in immediately.
1: This reminds me of the, I think I'm pronouncing it correctly, the Dunning Kruger effect that that idea of people who right who have all the confidence in the world think they know everything really don't. Like it's it's, it's there's it's amazing yeah,
0: that we all think we're better than average.
1: Yeah. 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 And then, and yeah. And I think I've read studies too, though, where certain people who who are very self-aware actually grade themselves lower.
0: Yeah. Depressed people are more accurate at assessing their own abilities than non-depressed people.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, very excited that on the Yes, And podcast, we're going to sink our teeth into the power of no. Um, you have a whole section on this, and it is not an antithesis to to uh, the Yes, And theory at all, because you, you'll rarely ever hear an improviser use those actual words. Um, uh, so tell us how no can be a lifesaver.
0: No is where we start the class and it's the first skill or strategy that I start the book with because I believe that this is the most important obstacle that almost all of us have to becoming more influential is we're not saying no enough and we're not comfortable enough with other people saying no to us. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: this is why we practice. So we practice saying no, and then we practice getting rejection, rejected trying to get rejected. And I have students do a 24-hour challenge. So listeners, if you feel like it, try out saying no to everything and everyone for 24 hours, even people you love, even things that are small, even things you want to do. The idea is to get the experience of saying no and seeing how it lands and how the other person reacts. So if you need to change your mind afterward, that's okay. And of course, you would, I think, know already take care of yourself. Don't ruin your life. So if your sweetie proposes to you and you wanted to marry them, don't say no. If you get a call, it's your dream job. Don't be like, no, and then call back and like, oh, psych, I was just kidding, (laughs) right? But what we find, what most people find is, first of all, they didn't realize how much they were defaulting to trying to say yes to everyone and everything. And not yes and in the positive, assertive, improvisational sort of way, but saying yes in a very passive, reactive, powerless kind of way where you just are letting everybody take your time and your attention as if they're entitled to it, especially if you care about them. And the second thing that we find out, so it can be very empowering, feels really good. Mm-hmm. And um, and that even includes a lot of people saying no to social engagements that they would have said yes and wanted to do, found that it was amazing to just chill out and stay home and not have to go socialize with the people that you love. Um, Although now we've gotten through the pandemic, maybe more time at home than we needed. And then the second thing that people find is that other people are so much more comfortable with us saying no, and also not even surprised. Mm -hmm. So when they were asking us, usually with most things, they weren't assuming that we're definitely going to say yes, they were hoping it but they knew there's a chance that we say no. And what we practice in the class challenge is we practice saying no with warmth because a lot of people tend to just conflate style and content when we're asking or when we're drawing boundaries. So to say the style, It's very important when you want to influence someone or build a relationship that you express warmth, maybe even more intentionally than you already do. So liking them is super important because otherwise you're going to be fake, right? Mm -hmm. Actually liking them, but then intentionally expressing it, especially when you're writing, if it's in emails or messages, people tend to perceive less warmth than we intended. And they tend to, if there's any sort of ambiguity or potential criticism, they see a lot more negativity than we intended. Uh, But we learned to just say no in a friendly, warm way, where you're saying no to this for now opportunity, but you're not saying no to the person or to that relationship, unless you want to, and then absolutely do.
1: Right, right. It made me think of the, the, most people say yes when I ask them to be on the podcast. Occasionally, I'll go after someone who's a big name. Um, and the technique, and I, f- I picked it up from somewhere, is I'm pretty sure I'm going to get a no on it. But I always add at the very end, thank you in advance for considering this request. Uh, and, and when I do that, overwhelmingly, even if they say no, I get a very sweet email back from the publicist.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's and- great. Because you're showing that you don't feel in any way entitled to their time. Yes,
1: that's exactly. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. You're showing, I know you're busy. It would be amazing if you would even think about doing this for me. And so they're not saying no to you or the relationship. They're just saying, you know, no, sorry, super busy for this thing. Yeah.
1: Okay. So and, on the other side of this. Wait, can I oh, just say like yeah.
0: on this topic of. Asking when you make it comfortable for the other person to say no. So, this is the flip side of no.
2: Yeah. Yeah. When
0: you make it comfortable for the other person to say no, they're actually end up being more inclined to say yes because you've taken off the pressure. And this isn't an individual one on one kind of request, but it's so aversive to feeling pressured to say yes. And it's so delightful to have somebody respect your freedom and ability to say no and say, it's absolutely fine. Like something like, Hey, thanks in advance for even considering this request.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, You on on the flip side of this, you have an experiment class where you pull out a $20 bill and you ask the students who would like to persuade you to give it to them. And then tell us what normally happens with us.
0: Well, the funny thing is that they don't ask, but they think that they are most of the time someone, you know, i find a volunteer. And they start telling me, they give me reasons like, you know, they're going to buy me flowers or donate the money to UNICEF or go have a beer with their classmate or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And I, and I say, you know, I I believe you or something like this Mm -hmm. and they're not asking. And then I'll ask the group, what didn't they do yet? And the mm-hmm. people who are listening, there's no mystery. there. are like, he didn't ask. Everybody knows that they didn't ask. But the person who's in the spotlight didn't realize that they weren't asking. They thought that giving the explanation was asking. Um, and for anyone who's worked in sales, you know that you have to actually get to the close if you yeah. want somebody to say yes, because among other things, they might not really understand that this is the opportunity and this is their chance and you're asking them for something. And you mm. can do it in a gentle way, but get to the point of giving them the chance to say yes or no. Something I find really interesting on this topic though is that culturally people coming from different cultures, so broad cultures, microcultures too, we have really wide ranges of cultural norms around how direct or indirect we should be when we're asking. So just general advice is if you're doing business across borders, absolutely. You need people on your team or advisors from that culture who can help you with this kind of thing. But also whatever culture you're from, you can start indirectly. But if you didn't get the response that you wanted, just be ready to be more direct than you already were.
1: I've done a fair amount of work in Japan. And uh, one of the things we learned early on is that they will never tell you the deal's not going through. They will never, ever tell you it just, it just won't happen. And it like, it's just, I'm like, Oh, okay. That's actually really valuable information to know if we're, if we're going forward with this thing or
0: not. And, and if you have a Japanese person on your team or advising you, that person can tell you that the deal is not going through. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there are clues and signs. It's just that as an American, you wouldn't know. And I wouldn't know.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: I was really surprised
1: that you noted that influence is a skill people wanted to develop, that, that the influence skill that people wanted to develop most is charisma. That surprised me.
0: Really? Yeah. What, they, would, they, they, what would you they, have predicted? Or what would you want, actually?
1: It's interesting. So so I'll do two things. I'll answer your question second. Um, uh, The reason I thought about this is I was actually literally just on a call with Sunil Gupta and my wife, Ann, and Northwestern, because we're developing a class based on his book, Backable, uh, using improv skills. And he has a line in that book that uh, conviction is more important than charisma, which I always love because I feel like, oh, yeah, if you if that that, uh, conviction, when someone believes something, you believe them like you can you can just tell And charisma always felt to me like a bit of a snake oil salesman version of that. Um, uh, So I think for me, I would think my influence skill would be a skill of persuasion, you know, or or a skill of being a great storyteller or something like that. But I I wonder, too, when people say charisma, maybe they mean all the things I'm talking about.
0: I think that maybe they do. Yeah. in order to be a great storyteller you probably have to have a lot of charisma.
2: Mm. But
0: I totally agree with you that storytelling and charisma are not the same thing. Yeah. But I I a little bit disagree with you about conviction and charisma. Mm. Not talk, being the talk same to me. thing. Yeah. And um and so I write in the book about how I've been asking people I've now asked thousands of them when they do a charisma workshop with me, charisma is very hard to define. We, mm. we know that it means people want to pay attention to us, but like you couldn't, you wouldn't say that somebody running through their office and their underwear is charismatic, right? No. Even though you pay a lot of attention to them, yes. that's not what you want. It's not no. the kind of attention you want. And however, you, we can bootstrap a definition of charisma by just asking people, I'll ask everyone in the room doing the workshop, think of somebody charismatic and write down three qualities of that person that make them charismatic. And Mm -hmm. then we go around the room and we write down a bunch of qualities on the board. And what happens is about 85% of the qualities that those people name fall into two buckets. One is connection and one is Mm. confidence. And Mm. confidence is directly related to the conviction that you're talking about. That's right. And, And connection helps seal the deal. So yeah, the way yeah. that you're talking about is conviction more important than charisma. I actually see it as part of charisma.
1: Yeah, I get it. A key, I get it.
0: Key ingredient of charisma.
1: Okay. Uh, two rock and roll things I want to talk to you about. Uh, the first, the first is I, I got great tickets. My wife and I got great tickets, uh, to see REM when they played the auditorium theater, which is a beautiful Louis Sullivan, Chicago venue, you know, an intimate venue. And Michael Stipe, I'd never seen them live before, and I assume he he does this a, a lot or did a lot when they were together. He would go find someone in the audience, make eye contact with them, make sure that they knew, smile, and then move on to someone else. And you talk about this in the in the book as a thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is what a lot of great speakers do. And what I, so I'll share a story that I, that I share in the book briefly, but what I don't share in the book, and what I didn't know until I was spending on t- spending time on stage as a speaker, I guess I hadn't thought about it as an actor. Because on when you're on stage as an actor, you're making eye contact with the other actors, right? Yeah, right,
2: right, and, right? And
0: as a speaker, you want to be making eye contact with people in the audience, like say I would as a teacher. But then mm-hmm. I'm speaking in bigger and bigger venues, and you know sometimes there are thousands of people, and the footlights are in your eyes you cannot make eye contact with someone in the audience. But what a lot of speakers and performers do is they just pretend. And so Um, I bet Michael Stipe wasn't even making eye contact with a specific person in the audience. And I've talked to people who will say like, oh yeah, you look like you're making eye contact and then you'll wink at somebody or, you know, you'll wave or you'll smile in this special way. But if the lights are in your eyes, you can't even see. see. So I don't know. Um, But this, but the story that I share in the book that's leading up to when I teach this skill that I call shining, mm-hmm. that's how you have somebody feel like the only person in the room, was when I got to go to a Prince concert. and
1: That's the other I, rock and roll story. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, tell us. I
0: have been a huge Prince fan since I was 10 years old. Of course. And I went to his movie and I listened to his Purple Rain album, a million times. And finally, I got to go as an adult, see him perform when I was a grad student. And he's in the club that he owns in Las Vegas. And we're, we've been waiting, waiting, waiting for two hours for this guy to come in. And the club is small. There's maybe a mm. hundred of us or something in the club. So, you've been waiting. It's hot. They're playing Prince music, Prince videos, and the excitement is building and building and building. And then the lights slowly come on. He takes the stage and he looks directly into my eyes. I'm uh. absolutely convinced. <laughs> and he says, Are we alone? <laughs> and I turn to, so it's Eldar Shafir, great behavioral scientist who's with me, brought me to the Prince concert. And I, put my hand on his arm and I say, Oh my God, Eldar, I think I'm going to faint. And at that moment, woman next to me on the other side, total stranger falls to the floor in a heap, dead faint paramedics uh, come and they pull her onto a stretcher. And I say to the paramedic, Oh my God, has that ever happened before? And he says, it's not unusual.
1: Wow. France,
0: apparently people, many people used to faint at Bill Clinton's rallies, engagements, mm. the Beatles, it's incredible that some people have this power of such charisma that they can just literally knock you out and but,
1: but he didn't start he didn't start that way. that's what no, you that's the amazing that's, thing. What's,
0: that's what's absolutely incredible about the Prince story is that he wasn't just not that charismatic. he was one of the least charismatic people. you could imagine he was so so shy and he was so quiet that when he first, Started making it big. Warner Brothers had signed him and he had a number one album, I want to be your lover, hit number one on the Billboard charts. But he sucked as a performer. And they had Mm. the executives from Warner Brothers had seen him, but he was so scared and so quiet that he slowly turned so that his back was facing the audience and he's playing to the wall. And then we when he has to speak to the audience, he doesn't speak above a whisper. And they said, Absolutely, you're not going on tour, forget about it. Mm. Rick James is doing his Super Freak tour. And because Prince's song is doing so well, he invites Prince to be the opening act for Mm. Rick James. Prince joins him on the tour. And this is how Prince teaches himself charisma. He watches so carefully and then copies, Mm. emulates Mm -hmm. Rick James. And the most important thing that he does is he learns how Rick James relates to the audience. And he connects with people in the audience one by one. And this is really, really the biggest special ingredient in the magic
1: yeah and 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 it's not magic right it it's it can be practiced it feels magic skills it feels magical totally but but all the things that we're talking about are are practiced skills uh, that unfortunately don't get taught to us. i i it, i've said this on a million times on the podcast Just, it when I found out that most business schools don't teach sales or had I was like that's confusing to me because the yeah. one thing you do in business is sell. That's everyone's selling. That is what they do. So yes. it's it's welcoming that more and more, you know, we do work at Harvard and we do work at UFC and other places where where they are bringing in saying yes, let's let's do some skills building around listening activities because as you know, the biggest superpower you can have is listening to someone else.
0: It's incredible,
1: right? Yeah. Absolutely, they, they feel seen, they feel heard. And that is like, that's the ultimate sort of human condition.
0: Absolutely. And that's what you're so good at and how you have this podcast be fascinating for all other, other people to listen to because you're such a great listener. And of course you prepared, you have interesting questions too, but the the listening so that you can steer the conversation in some interesting direction based on the answers and all of this. I write in the book um, about, an exercise that we do in class called the empathy challenge. Can I share that? Yeah, I'd like you to. Great. The empathy challenge is a listening exercise in which you're not trying to influence anyone. So you're, you can't be asking them for something. You only can be listening and you choose someone who disagrees with you on an issue you care passionately about. And so you're just going to try to understand them and develop empathy and respect for this person as they share their point of view with you. So you're saying, tell me more about that. And you can ask follow-up questions. And what you're doing internally is trying to identify what their deep core values are that are informing that belief that they have that conflicts with yours. And then after, say, 15 minutes or so, when it feels right, you reflect that back to them. And you say, it sounds like you care really deeply about, and you're guessing. Maybe it's, liberty, maybe it's relationships with other people, maybe it's inclusiveness, maybe it's education, whatever that is, you guess, you put your guess out there, and then they're just going to tell you whether you're right or wrong, and you might be wrong, and they'll clarify. But what's really cool is that they will love that you're trying to understand them at this deep level. So you're building this relationship just as well, whether you got them perfectly or whether you didn't get them perfectly, and then they're going to help you understand them. And this is the kind of feeling seen that, that you were just talking about, Kelly, that has people then in the long run, potentially being willing to open up and listen themselves and be open to the possibility of maybe one day changing their mind on something that they care deeply about. Cause con- conversion never happens in one yeah. conversation. It's only in yeah. a relationship.
1: Zoe, did I ever share with you the uh, thank you because exercise that we developed with Nick Eppley and his team?
0: I don't think so. What is that?
1: So uh, we did the yes and exercise and they were all like, totally makes sense. There's actually tons of, Science to back up why that's a technique that works, and you know, simply on the default, you know, of doing no or saying nothing. So they're like, But what happens when you have a disagreement with someone, a real serious disagreement, but you need to stay inside the conversation? And so, what we ended up doing was creating this exercise uh, where after we, you do, you're doing the yes hand, but then you find something that you disagree on, and your job is to listen to what the person says. Thank them for the information, so the gratitude part of the brain goes off, and then the because is you find anything, anything within what they say <laughs> uh, that that you connect with. So the example I always use is one of my uh, uh, daughter's best friends. Her parents were anti-vax, and this was before she got sick. That they, 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 they like this was just the situation, um, and uh, we didn't want to lose that relationship. And so literally, I would say to them thank you because you care for your daughter so much. You don't want her to get hurt. Mm-hmm. The same thing here. We're just coming from two different ways, but we have the same core value, which is the most important value. And that made it like, okay. Like they, they texted and they, you know, emailed and did other, other stuff, but it's been, we are actually, there's a paper coming out next year on this. Uh, I we've been, love this. Yeah. It's a great one. And, and people find it. They, they, even if it's a minor, like we have them do the exercise, like chunky peanut butter or not. Uh, it doesn't matter. It's the practicing of doing that, that then gives you an ability to like, oh, I can use this technique when I'm faced with, you know, my get like a Trump, a Trumpy person. Right. And if, if you're willing to stay inside that conversation, but yeah. you got to be willing to
0: do that. Yeah. And just what you illustrated. So I wrote down, thank you because, and I want to read the paper. So that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but Just what you were saying about thank you because, and then what you found is their deep core value about caring about, their children's safety and health. Yeah. And then, and what happens most of the time if you do this exercise, and it sounds like, thank you, because exactly very, very similar goal is that you find yourself having empathy and relating to that person and their deep values because we all fundamentally share almost all of the same values. Right. Right. We just have them in a different order.
2: Yeah. So we right.
0: might trade off different ones against each other. So even if whatever that person cares about, say it's liberty is not as high a value for you as Mm -hmm. say a value of equality, you could still appreciate that they want to have liberty and have other people have liberty and experience freedom because who doesn't?
1: Yeah, exactly. All right. In a second, I'm going to ask you for your second yes and story because you've been on the pod before. But before I do that, I do want you to talk to the audience about the magic question.
0: I love the magic question. And it is a lot of people's favorite strategy that I teach them because it's so damn easy and we're all lazy like alligators and it's very, very effective. I'll share just very brief story that Gloria Steinem shared when she came to New Haven, my hometown a while ago. And her story was this, it'll help this sink concretely Mm -hmm. into your gator brain. She was at this point in time, a An passionate expert and evangelist on the problems and solutions to sex trafficking. She'd gone to a conference in Zambia. And after the conference, she goes to a village that's in the middle of nowhere near a big game preserve where three of the young women had been lost to sex trafficking the previous year. And she sits down with the women of the village on a tarp in the middle of a barren field. And rather than giving them her expert advice, which she's been building up for years. She asks them the magic question and she just says, what would it take for those women not to have left the village in that way? And they tell her an electric fence, Mm. an electric fence. Mm. They said, when the corn reaches a certain height, the elephants come in and they eat it and they trample it. We have nothing to eat. We have nothing to sell. We have no money to send our kids to school. And these young women and their families were really desperate. She says, okay, if I raise some money for the fence, will you clear the field and will you build it? They say, yes. So she goes home, raises the money, sends it back to the village. And then she goes back to visit a couple of years later. And according to her, there's a bumper crop of corn and mm. no young women have left the village in that way. Nobody has been sex trafficked. Wow. So the magic question is just what would it take? And you can use it. Everybody can use it in almost any situation with almost anybody, even if you've used it with them before, even if you've taught the question to them, my daughter, my students, everybody uses it with me. It's It works mm-hmm.
2: because
0: it's first of all, fundamentally respectful. You are acknowledging the other person is the expert on their situation or their obstacles. They know things you don't know. You're shifting the mindset from this pressure to try to get them to do something to collaborative problem solving. And then magically or miraculously, most of the time, they'll give you a roadmap to success. And a lot of the time, it's so much easier than what you might have expected and less than you might have been willing to do. Like an electric fence is a really easy solution to a really huge problem. And you never could have thought of it if you hadn't asked this question. Chlorostinum never could have thought of it. And then there's this hidden aspect to it that is Also, when somebody gives you that roadmap, they are implicitly committing to supporting that outcome. So, the way that I read it, here's a story. When these women said, What we need is an electric fence to solve the sex trafficking problem in our village, it's not that the electric fence just miraculously solves the whole problem, but that because the women said, This is what we need, when they get the fence, The women are going to make sure none of their friends and neighbors and daughters are going to be sex trafficked.
2: Yeah. So it's
0: not a magic wand. You don't instantaneously always get what you want, but it's the start of a conversation. And if you just begin practicing it, you'll you'll be surprised. I've had a bunch of participants in workshops have magic feeling outcomes, like um, someone from the New York Times got the New York Times to change their employee benefits policy to cover egg and sperm freezing for any employee who wants it. Someone mm. who's um, at Turner networks who wanted to create an internship program that would pay people so that they could recruit particularly underserved minorities. And he was able to create this program for 16 people by going, he actually went and told the magic question, elephant sex trafficking story about oh, wow. to the executives and funded the project.
1: So oh, it's, it's magic has- question. Yeah, it's aspir. You're providing inspiration and aspiration. Yeah, you know, it's got muscle to it, and it's got you know. Yeah, I love it. All right, uh, we could talk forever, but uh, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story to close us out.
0: So Kelly, I want to just share the yes and challenge that I give my students on the second day of class. So the first one is 24 hours of no, and the second one is 24 hours of yes and, and. This is a different flavor of yes and than what we're talking about when we talk about improv, which is taking the opportunity that you're given and then, or, or the default as yep. Dick Thaler would call it, and then mm-hmm. adding to it to turn it into something better. This is taking a request from someone else. And you're saying yes to it, and then you're immediately making your own request. And this is just expanding the toolbox of influence to do something that we don't normally do. And and again, you're testing a hypothesis that most of us have that it wouldn't be cool to do that. It would be kind of transactional, and that yeah. can be. But what ends up happening actually is that a lot of times when you say yes, sure, I'd be happy to do you that favor, and then you throw something out of your own, out on your own, like. Um, And it could be related or unrelated. Like Mm -hmm. somebody asks you to give them some advice and you say, yes, and uh, would you help me wash my car? Or Mm
2: -hmm. yes, Mm -hmm. and could you
0: give me a ride to the airport? Yes, and would you pass the salt? Whatever the thing is, the the weird aspect of this is that when somebody's asked you a favor, often they're glad to be able to do you a favor back. And of course, like, you know, would you pass this out? Yeah. Would you give me a ride to the airport? They'll be like, what? But it's just funny. It doesn't matter. And it's expanding your toolbox and giving you practice. I love it.
1: That's great. The book is called Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change, and Making Good Things Happen. Zoe Chance, thank you so much for coming back on the pod.
0: Thank you so, so much, Kelly. Take care
1: getting to yes and is produced by the second city and wgn radio our producer and editor is ashley byhunt and we are supported at the second city by mike farinaccio and colleen fahey the music you hear at the beginning and end of each podcast is by jukebox the ghost if you're interested in knowing more or working with the second city go to www.secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com